You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We'll be in Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to probably do a little bit of review and then start with verse 28. But let's read in Daniel chapter 2 from, uh, let me see, yeah, we will read through verse 35, Daniel chapter 2 verses 19 through 35. So remember the king has required his astrologers, his conjurers, his sorcerers, his wise men, quote-unquote, to not only tell him what he had dreamt, but to tell him what the interpretation was. And they couldn't do it. So the order was sent out to kill all of the wise men. And Daniel has stopped it and gotten an opportunity to, to pray. And the Lord revealed to him the dream and the interpretation. And so then it says in verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed God, the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. (laughs) And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter." Therefore, verse 24, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery which about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king... While on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single statue, single great statue, That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, and partly of clay. 
You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became chaff from the summer became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So as we were looking at this previously, it became very evident that Daniel's desire, no matter what, is to elevate Jehovah God, is to praise Him and honor Him. He had an absolutely perfect opportunity to put himself in the position of being the most important in the kingdom, possibly as important as the king. But he chose not to do that because it was God that gave him the revelation, and he acknowledges that, and he spends quite a few verses of his book, of his letter, of his history that he wrote, praising Jehovah God through from verse uh, 20 through 23. So then Daniel goes into the king at the behest of Arioch, who had told the king, Hi, I found a guy who can interpret your dream. I'm the man. You need me, King Nebuchadnezzar. That's what political types do. They, they in, 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 engender themselves, they endear themselves to those in power with greater power than them so that they can gain power and influence and money. It's all about that kind of thing. But not with Daniel. He was a man of God. And his desire was to elevate God. So <clears throat> when the king says, can you, can you interpret the dream for me? Daniel says, no, nobody can do that. But the God of heaven, there is a God in heaven who can give the interpretation. And that's what he's done. So last week we ended up on verse, we kind of started verse 28. And I kicked it off without a, pr a proper introduction to another, yet another of the critics, um, Criticisms, I guess, is the best word to put, of the book of Daniel, trying to make it something other than a prophetic book, trying to make it a history book. <clears throat> Many places in the Old Testament, the, the words, the latter days, appears. And when those words appear, nearly without exception, they are messianic in tone, messianic in interpretation. And so we're going to look at some of those, maybe. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I'm just going to see if this thing's... Oh, you got to turn it on all the time, too. Yeah. Boy, it works so much better when you turn it on. So verse 27, Daniel answered the king after he'd been asked by the king, "If you are you able to make this dream and its interpretation known to me? He said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However... In verse 28, he says, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Now, that's an Aramaic phrase, and it refers to the end of things. It's also in Hebrew, it refers to the end of things. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Um so, and we talked about the fact that Daniel had Daniel, and I did again this morning, had Daniel any aspirations towards our office, this would have been the time, but he didn't. He, will, he, go, he goes ahead and he begins to, he, he acknowledges that he received this information from the God of heaven, and then he begins the description of the dream and the interpretation of it. His, and his proclamation to the king, uh, by the way, about not anybody being able to interpret this, but the God in heaven, 
served, we talked about two projects, number prospects, or two objects, I guess I should say. He was elevating Jehovah above everything Nebuchadnezzar had ever imagined, and he was defending the other wise men, who, I think you pointed out last week, who would be happy to throw him under the bus, or actually, worse yet, you might be able to get out from under the bus if you time it right, but he was going to be thrown into the lion's den. We should use that. Well, that's throwing him into the lion's den. Everybody would know what we were talking about. It would be an opportunity to preach the gospel. <clears throat> In effect, Daniel declares God's sovereignty, and at the same time, he protects the pagan seers from their own duplicity and their own inability. He downplays men, and he gives glory and credit to God. In doing this, he was even taking a chance because he was clearly elevating Jehovah over Nebuchadnezzar's gods, over the gods of Babylon. There is a God in heaven, he said, and it's not Marduk or any of the other ducks that you have lined up. I just made that up. That was pretty good. <laughs> Commentators have fixated on the phrase latter days. Some say that it is a statement after the fact by the spurious Daniel who wrote in the time of the Maccabees, uh, and the statement has no messianic context because it's a history and not a prophecy. Remember, for those of you that maybe missed the introduction of the, to the book, those who will criticize the book of Daniel, their number one objection is that it's too accurate, too many prophecies, too pinpoint accurate. Therefore, it couldn't be a prophetic book. It has to be a history book. That's like, I don't know what kind of an argument that is, but I call it stupid. Um, it's a prophetic book. It was written in 530 B.C., and it was it prophesied all of the sweep of history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the kingdom of God. So the commentators have fixated on this phrase, latter days. They say it has no messianic context, and that often what I missed out on explaining last year was they would, last week, I mean, last year, it was a year ago. Last week was that in a given book, in a given, um, in a given book with a prophecy or with a statement of latter days, the latter days is specific to the time that the person who wrote it lived. So the latter days of Jacob would be his end time, his end days, just before he died. Well, that's not what you get from the context when you read these scriptures. So each of these has to be determined with, by context and application. It's used 14 times in the Old Testament, and they say they are using it, these critics say they are only using it from their personal protect perspective and that it depicts the latter days of their own vision. It is first used in Genesis 49.1. Jacob summed up summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Other uses are found in Hosea 5. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now let me point something out. David was 200 years dead when Hosea wrote his book. So he probably wasn't talking about David. You think? Probably that descendant of David who would sit on the throne perpetually, that the Hebrews knew about, their Messiah. He said, I will, Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Messianic. Isaiah 2 2. Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and the nation, all the nations will stream to it. Last days. Messianic. Micah 4.1, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Uh, nearly word for word what Isaiah said. 
Jeremiah 48, 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far the judgment on Moab. Again, messianic. But it will come about, Jeremiah 49, 39, in the last days, that I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 30, 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed, until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. Messianic. Understand that the observant Israelite was always looking towards the coming of the Messiah. Every Hebrew woman thought that she might be the one. Every Hebrew woman. They all looked forward. Each of the verses mentioned before have messianic content, messianic implication. In this particular case, Daniel is alluding to the establishment of the divine kingdom in the final years of the fourth kingdom, which is the revived Roman Empire. Walvoord in his commentary says, here, as the sequel shows, it is similarly the period of the establishment of the divine kingdom, which is principally denoted by it in verses 34, 35, 44, and 45 of Daniel chapter 2. But the closing years of the fourth kingdom, verse 40 through 43, may well also be included in it. Again, from the first part of this phrase in Genesis, the first use of this phrase in Genesis 49, messianic import is established. In each case, context determines the extent of that import. With regard to this section of Scripture, content and context shows clear messianic implications, messianic connection. The old, one Old Testament scholar said this. He said, in this context, the expression must involve the eschatological future, eschatological future things. So it's kind of like the future, future, (laughs) if you're you're kind of repeating yourself. That's what eschatology is involved with, the study of future things. It must involve the eschatological future, for it concerns the final phase of the fourth kingdom that Daniel describes, which we will get to someday, and the coming kingdom of God. When does the kingdom of God come in its finality? Anybody got a date, by the way? July 19th, 2025. No, I just made that up. What what hour? <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> no, we're not supposed to set dates. Don't do that. Bad, bad idea. To tie this up, Walvoord, John Walvoord, in his commentary, expresses it this way. He says, the expression is found as early as Genesis 49, 1, where Jacob predicted the future of his sons. The term is employed by Balaam in Numbers 24, 14, and Moses in Deuteronomy 4, 30 and 31, in connection with the future of Israel. An examination of these prophecies indicates that the latter days includes much of which is now history. Much of which is now history. All of the things that happened subsequent to the final latter days. You've heard the phrase that we are in the end times. Well, I'm, I'm going to steal my own thunder. I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll wait until I get to the next page, but there's a lot between here and there, and it's, it's really exciting. But with reference to the consummation in Messianic times, Jeremiah used the expression a number of times to refer to the climax of the age relating to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you will find these in, if you're taking notes, Jeremiah 23, 20, 30, 24, and 48, 47, 40, excuse me, 48, 47, and 49, 39. Ezekiel identified the times of the invasion of Gog and Magog. I actually have that for you if you need it. There's the text we're reading. Ezekiel identified the times of the invasion invasion of Gog and Magog as in the latter days in 3816 of the book of Ezekiel. 
The expression is also found in Hosea 3.5 and in Micah 4.1 in reference to the Messianic age. On the basis of scriptural usage, it is clear that the latter days is an extended period of time regarded as the consummation of the prophetic purview involved in each instance. So when the... Well, let me finish his, his comment and then we'll talk about it. Accordingly, <laughs> Culver's definition is accurate that the expression refers to the future of God's dealings with mankind as to be consummated and concluded historically in the times of the Messiah. He goes on to point out that the expression always has in view the ultimate establishment of the messianic kingdom on earth, even though the latter days includes events that are now history, such as the division of Israel in the promised land. Some of the preview, some of the predictions included that. They also include beyond that to the final latter days. On the basis of the usage of the Old Te- in the Old Testament, it can be concluded that the expression is larger than that of Messianic times specifically, but that it always includes this element in its consummation. So a prophecy may be declaring things that continue, a, a continuum of history that occurs. Some of it is, is now history. Some of it was history by the time Christ came. Some of it was history by the time the next prophet wrote his book. But the continuation of that prophecy continues all the way through to the final latter days, which is the the coming kingdom of God. By the way, Culver refers to Robert D. Culver, who was a professor of systematic theology and wrote the commentary Daniel in the latter days. And I commend it to you. I've been reading through it. And he writes in layman's terms. It's very nice. It's it's free on the internet. It's just Robert D. Culver, uh, Daniel in the Latter Days. It's uh it's not a long read, and it's it's kind of broken up. If anybody wants it, I have actually taken the the uh, opportunity to copy it into a PDF, and I can send it to you if you want. It's it's a good read. So. The New Testament has many references to the latter days, and uh, we can look at just a few of them. Acts chapter 27, 27, that's like Proverbs 40. Acts chapter 2, 17 through 21, which is a reference to Joel 2, 28 through 32 comes to mind. Acts, 20, Acts 2, 17 through 21. And it's, it, I think he's shouting at us. Isn't that what that means? And it will come about in the last days, and it shall be in the last days, God said, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Therefore, the great before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When God wants to authenticate his prophecy, what he is saying, he will send signs and wonders. And he's done that in the past, the last time being with the closing of the New Testament period. Nothing subsequent to that, but there's going to come a time when it will happen again. And I put both Joel and Acts up there so you can see that uh, the, the quotation. So for this section, at, at least in the introduction to the vision where Daniel is telling the king, you were on your bed and these are the things you saw and the interpretation of them, there, the interpretation of them. Walvard finishes this up in, in his commentary. He says, in the New Testament, there is allusion to the Old Testament concept and then he lists numerous scriptures 
Um, Acts 2, 17 through 21. But elsewhere, reference to the last day, John 6, 39, 40, 44, 54, 7, 37, and 11, 24, 12, and 48. Acts 2, 17, 2 Timothy 3, 1, Hebrews 1, 2, James 5, 3, and numerous others. They must be interpreted contextually, and it is not always the same concept as the latter days. And you can look at John 7, 37 to see that. The latter days for Israel are not precisely the same as the last days for the church. As the Old Testament characteristically spans the present age without including the church in its consideration, at least specifically. Taking both the Old and New Testament uses together, it is clear that the latter days for Israel began as early as the division of the land to the 12 tribes in Genesis 49. Excuse me, 12 tribes. And include the first and second advents of Christ. The last days for the church culminate at the rapture and the resurrection of the church and are not related to the time of the end for Israel. Daniel does not deal with the age between the two advents except for the time of the end. And the New Testament does not clearly use the term latter days of the present church age. In the context of Daniel 2, the latter days includes all the vision that Nebuchadnezzar received and stretches from 600 B.C., the time of Nebuchadnezzar, to the second coming of Christ to the earth. It is used in a similar way in Daniel 10, verse 14, including the extensive revelation concerning the remainder of the Medo-Persian kingdom. And this, by the way, this will all make sense as we go through it, piece by piece. We're getting the great sweep right now. The Medo-Persian kingdom. Many details of Alexander's empire, as in chapter 11 in Daniel. And the consummation called the time of the end in Daniel 11, 36 through 45. These prophecies serve to give added detail not included in the revelation to Nebuchadnezzar. So in 11, Daniel 11, we will see some prophecies that are separate from but not different from the dream in chapter 2. They give added detail to that. Having stated the general purpose, now Daniel was able to unfold what will occur in the latter days, namely the majestic progression of four great world empires and their destruction and replacement by the fifth empire, the kingdom from heaven. So now, according to Walvert anyway, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams can be un- dream can be unfolded. For purposes of understanding this from the perspective of a Christian, recognize that we acknowledge we are in the last days, at least since the New Testament was written. Paul thought he was in the very last days when he wrote the New Testament. A testimony to two things. Number one, no man is perfect and sees the future. Number two, God did not give Paul a date. He gave him the scripture that he wrote. And Paul knew that Christ was coming. And one of the things it serves to do in the, in the life of an observant, if you will, Christian is he could return at any moment. Could he return today? You bet he could. Are you ready? I love to see nodding heads when I ask that question. That's one of the things that purposes it serves. Paul thought Christ would come very soon. Augustine assumed Christ would be back by 650 A.D., he didn't date it, but that was the general time when Augustine thought Christ would be back. One of the characteristic characteristics of an expectant, obedient, doctrine-driven believer is the idea that Christ could return at any time. This would have been the same view of an Old Testament believer. They would have looked forward to the coming of the Messiah at any time. As we get into the next section of Daniel, it will be profitable for us now to review some terms, some definitions 
In the introduction to Daniel chapter 2, I gave somewhat synoptic descriptions of each of the three major beliefs about the end times. For our purposes going forward, a thorough understanding of the definition of premillennialism is important. This definition comes from Robert D. Culver's commentary, Daniel in the Latter Days. Dr. Culver is highly spoken of by numerous theologians that you would know. He lived in the, he wrote in the 50s um, and 60s. Um, Walvard commends him. MacArthur commends him. And so that's, I, I commend his book to you. It's, a, it's an excellent read. It's a fun read. Um, he deals with, I'm getting way off the track. You just read it. You'll enjoy it. So, I always go the wrong direction. So what is a millennium? What is a millennium? Any answers to that question? What's a millennium? Just the general word, millennium. It's a thousand years. Does it mean anything else? Does it mean 50 years ever? Does it mean ice cream ever? Well, if you're a critic of Daniel, it could. It could. The millennium specifically is the period of time between the resurrection of the just and the unjust and the period of Satan's imprisonment. Number two, the millennium is further qualified as an initial stage of the everlasting kingdom of Christ. An initial stage of the everlasting kingdom of Christ, a period begun by the visible return of Christ in glory to judge and rule the nations, a period closed by the final eradication of all evil from God's universe at the final judgment of the wicked, and number four, a period during which the saints of the first resurrection will be associated with Christ in his reign. Number three, in connection with the inauguration of the millennium, it is revealed that one, the closing days of the present age shall witness the restoration of Israel to the land and the conversion of the nation to be followed in the millennium by the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant promises distinctive to that nation. Number two, a final personal antichrist shall appear near the close of this present age who will become master of the world, and will be destroyed by Christ at his coming. And, number three, a period of great tribulation for Israel is to transpire under Antichrist suppression from which deliverance will be provided by Christ at his coming. That, for our purposes, is the concept of the millennial kingdom, the millennium, and premillennialism. With that understanding, are there any questions? Don't ask hard ones. Yes. You have to gather that are, are after the days, after days, after many days, and the latter days, are they the same? In some cases they are, and it is determined by context. Now, I don't have that in front of me right now, but when I was reading through, sometimes it's clear they're talking about the millennial kingdom. They're, they're talking about the final end. Sometimes it's not. It's talking about a local um, after many days. But the latter days, as near as I can tell, always have messianic implications. The latter days do. Okay, verse 29. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. At this point, Daniel lets the king know that he's going to give him the information he seeks, that he desires. But he first reminds the king that this information is not coming from himself, not coming from he, Daniel but rather from God, whom Daniel gives a new name. He who reveals mysteries. It's a phrase, and it's, it's a name that, that Daniel kind of appends on to Jehovah. Now he is not only um, he who heals, he who provides, but is he who, he, he who reveals mysteries. So that means that there's no one else that reveals mysteries. All the gods of Babylon, all the gods that you're 
previous wise men were seeking, they don't have these mysteries. Jehovah God has them, period. Daniel knew by God's revelation. Yes. Yeah. He leaves, Daniel leaves himself out. And, and that is so hard to do, especially when you're right. And you know you're right. And you want everybody else to know you're right. And that it was you that was right. That's who we are. That's who I am. That is not who Daniel is. Daniel is a, God is a revealer of mysteries and Daniel is a revealer of God in everything he says and everything that he does. We need to learn from that. Daniel knew by God's revelation that the king had been wondering about the future. He had just finished an unbelievably fast rise to power and had become the most powerful monarch in the ancient world. He controlled huge swaths of land. It was natural for him to wonder what came next. He was no dummy. He'd studied history. He'd seen kingdoms rise and fall, sometimes in the lifetime of one of the kings, which was cut very short by the next guy who took over and established his own kingdom, which was completely different from his kingdom. Solomon wondered about this as well, especially, we should go through Ecclesiastes again. It's in there. Yeah. <laughs> so Daniel now informs the king, and this is the beginning. I can imagine the king, you were thinking of the future, and the king, you know, whatever your interpretation of the initial part of it, whether the king knew and was faking the, the diviners out, or he, he had a vague remembering, whatever he remembered on his bed, he couldn't remember the dream, but it terrified him. You've had those. You've woken up. And something, whatever you dreamed, you were scared, but you couldn't remember what you dreamed. And you were looking around and maybe a noise woke you up or something. I'm, I'm picturing this, this king going, oh, that's right. And goosebumps going down his back. Ooh, he's, he's, this guy knows. Cause he'd seen his father lied to by these seers for probably many years. So. <clears throat> He had become the most powerful monarch, and he was wondering what would come next. What's going to come after my kingdom? Verse 30, but as for me, this mystery, Daniel says, in keeping with what you just pointed out, Daniel says, as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me any more than in, in, in residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And I might add, so that we would have this marvelous prophecy that we can read and love God for. Daniel continues his praise and elevation of Jehovah by declaring that no living person could have come up with this information on their own. It had to be revealed by the God of heaven. The purpose of the revelation and the interpretation of the revelation is twofold. First, it was to help the king understand what he was dreaming about. The second purpose, which will be revealed as we read on, is to provide a record of the details of the future coming world history. God's purposes in the revelation of, myst of mysteries are always for his glorification. In his infinite kindness, he also allowed this interpretation to bring understanding to King Nebuchadnezzar and later to us. So those are the purposes of the revelation that Daniel is going to give to this king. Verse 30, any questions or comments? Verse 31, you, O king, were looking. And I can just imagine, I was. And behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you. And its appearance was awesome. As Daniel begins his interpretation, who knows? This is another one of those things that is left up to sanctified imagination. This could be as good a representation. I went online and I typed in Daniel's 
um, statue, or Nebuchadnezzar's statue. There was all kinds of pictures. Pretty much all of them were similar to this, but there were different variations. And all of them, any one of them could have been right. I'm not creative enough to come up with one, so I borrowed one. <coughs> so as Daniel begins his interpretation of the dream, it was most likely evident to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel was being honest, but see most certainly recognized that Daniel was telling him the very dream that he had. And I think at the very least, as Daniel went along and revealed more of the dream and and the interpretation, the king would remember, oh, yeah. And he probably remembered ahead of some of the stuff Daniel was saying. Because he was just a guy, just like the rest of us are. And he put his toga on one leg at a time. (laughs) Maybe he jumped into it, I don't know. So... The statue was human in form and must have been very huge and very bright as it reflected light. The word splendor is a translation of the Chaldee word, Chaldee word which, which denotes brightness. It was very bright, the kind of bright where you have to kind of look at it like this. Yesterday, a friend of mine was on the hill behind us. He'd hiked up the hill up behind Billy Lovelace's place, and he texted me. And he texted me a picture of my property. And I thought, I looked up, no airplane. What's going on here? And he said, this is your property from 3,300 feet. Well, so he, um, 3,400, whatever he said. And I said, where are you? So he said, I'm on the hill behind Billy's. I said, signal me. Wave your arms or something. So I, he said, okay, just watch the top of the hill. So he took his phone and he flashed it. And that flash went across my eyes. I had to, you know, apparently he has a really nice mirror-shaped phone. But So this is the kind of thing where you just kind of, you see it and you have to, it's going to blind your eyes if you just look directly at it. That's the idea of this Chaldee word. It was huge, exceedingly bright, and it inspired fear, which is the meaning of the word translated awesome. When we say awesome, we lose, I think in America today, in our language, we lose sight of the fact that the word, first word in that, the first suffix in that word is awe. Awesome. This, this statue was massive, it was bright, and it inspired fear. It was He was awestruck. So then Daniel starts the interpretation, and I'm trying to decide what to do here because we're not going to make it through what I have. And, uh, well, I can review the next time I come up because you want to get your money's worth. You know, we got eight minutes here. Yeah. Uh, the head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze. Now, now Daniel describes the components, <laughs> excuse me, of the statue. The head was not just made of gold, it was made of, it was made of good work fine gold. It was made of the kind of gold that was used for the finest implements and jewelry of the day. It wasn't just the stuff you just dug out of the ground and, and panned or panned it and you put it in your little snuffer bottle and you smashed it and made it into something, a, a dime or something, a, a gold dime. This was the most fine gold, beautiful gold. I learned some interesting things about the properties of gold. Did I write them up here? Yeah, I did, so I won't get ahead of myself. <clears throat> its chest and arms were made of silver, silver, in the, and the belly and upper legs were made of bronze. <clears throat> Imagine the king's incredulity as Daniel carefully details every aspect of his dream. He did, this had to be just utterly amazing to this king. And you know it was, because later on, what does he do? He elevates him. He does. Daniel doesn't seek high office, but he's given it because the king knows this guy's for real. Actually, he knows that his God is for real. 
This would have probably inspired both awe and fear as well as encouragement. This young man was different from all the other seers that he had had interaction with over his life. He was actually getting the truth, and this probably encouraged and unsettled him at the same time because it would have just been awe. He would have been awestruck. Verse, tw- verse 33, it's legs of iron, it's feet partly of iron and partly of clay. <clears throat> I guess that was the last one. Further descriptive terms indicate that the legs were of normal iron and the feet were a mixture of iron and clay, the kind of clay that was used for making pottery. And what happens when you drop a piece of pottery? It shatters. What happens when you drop a piece of iron? It breaks your foot. It's what it usually does. <laughs> I can vouch for that. <sighs> thousands of observations about this statue have been made over the centuries. Probably more than thousands, tens of thousands. It can be noted from the, that, and, and it can be noted, and several things can be noted. From the top down, the value of the materials decreases. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron clay. These are some observations that people have made over the centuries. From the top of the statue to the bottom, the value decreases. The weight, excuse me, it can also be noted that other than the clay from the top down, the strength of the materials increases. Gold isn't as tough as silver. Silver isn't as tough and usable as bronze for for, um, difficult Applications. Iron is stronger yet. Now, iron and clay, that's a different story, and we'll get to that. <clears throat> the weight decreases from the top down as well. Gold is very malleable. Silver less so, and bronze much less so. Iron is not very malleable at all, and then, of course, clay is very malleable. Now, here's some of the things I learned about gold, just, just for your own, because um, I'm a trivia guy. Gold is so malleable that it has been said that it can be beaten to less than the thickness of the wavelength of light. I didn't know that. I knew you could take, I read somewhere you could take a square inch, a cubic inch, and beat it to a mile. Beat it out to a thread a mile long. <laughs> Why would you do that? I'd, I'd buy something with it, but you know. Yeah, I made my gold into a mile long string. We can't find it now. No one understands why this is. For all the centuries that we've been studying the atomic structure of of atoms and and thus and such, they don't know why gold can do this. They have theories. I remember when I was in college and high school, and they would come up with something that they didn't really know why it was working. They would give it a name in Latin or Greek, so you wouldn't know that they didn't know. That's why the original stuff that held the held back in the day when they were still learning this stuff, the, 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 the component, the goo that held the protons and neutrons together, you know what they called that back in the day? Gluon. I wonder where they got that. <laughs> we don't know what it is. Let's, it's got to be some kind of glue. Let's call it gluon. By the way, the same people that are giving you information about today's disease, they are the guys that named it gluon. Okay. Gold can accommodate plastic deformation even when the thickness is less than the size of the subgrains formed. So it gets, you can smash it smaller and smaller and smaller and the subgrains are small, too small to be, to be reduced anymore and it can be reduced more and they don't know why. They don't know why. This unusual behavior of gold is attributed to the absence of an oxide film which enables dislocations to escape from the surface of the metal. Attributed to, we think. Remember that. 
It is incredible and very valuable metal. It has multiple uses and has long been used as money. Silver is also very malleable, able to be beaten into pretty much any shape one would want, but it is less so than gold and platinum. Silver also has multiple uses in industry and has been used as money for millennia. Iron is very strong and also malleable. It is also very useful in industry. And clay, of course, can be shaped into anything one wants, hardened in the kiln and used for many purposes. So those are the, uh, those are the substances that are in this and they will have interpretational value as we go on. And we will be very careful to use the historical grammatical method and not get into the fanciful interpretations that have occurred over the centuries. We may have fun talking about some of them, but we will not, we will not push them as doctrine. We will push, we will talk about what we can know from the scripture. <clears throat> so then we're gonna, we're gonna finish up with verse 34 and, uh, with this little vision in front of you here. So, the, the dream statue, I actually had another one, and I'm trying to figure out where it went. Not there, not there, not there. So I probably forgot to put it in. It'll be a bonus for next, next time. It's, it's a, a chart showing the head was gold, valuable, soft, self-contained unit, heavy, and smallest. The chest and arms were silver, less valuable, harder, one unit, two parts, lighter, and larger. The abdomen and thighs were bronze, even less valuable, even harder. One unit, two different parts, even lighter, even larger. Lower legs were iron, still less valuable, still harder. Two parts, still lighter, still larger. And the feet and toes, iron and clay, less valuable, very hard, and very soft. Two parts, ten segments. Ten segments, remember that. How many toes does most of us have? People who've been careful in their construction jobs? Ten. We have ten toes. And it is the lightest and the largest. Lightest and, and the lightest. So then I'm going to finish with verse 34. Daniel says to the king, he says, You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Now, when you get your legs kicked out from under you, what happens? I was When I was a kid, I didn't know what mange was. Anybody here know what mange is? It's kind of a disease that cows get in their, their hide. And I walked up behind one of our friendly milk cows, and I started scratching a bare spot. <laughs> she didn't like it. She kicked me right across the knees, and I found out what the stuff on the floor tasted like, just like that. My legs went out from under me, and I went down like a ton of bricks, well, 100 pounds of bricks. So the description continues with the stone that was cut without hand, the implication that God did this. No hands cut this stone. God did this. And struck the statue at its weakest point, the feet, and completely crushed them. And when it completely crushed the feet, the whole statue collapsed. And we'll see later on that it was... Well, we've got time to read verse 35. We'll finish with verse 35. This in itself must have also been terrifying to Nebuchadnezzar and explains his inability to sleep. So this great, big, cool statue, and then all of a sudden this big stone comes flying, and it destroys the statue. And he knows it means something. He just doesn't know what. Verse 35, and we'll finish here. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, and it became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The destruction of the statue was complete. It wasn't like when I got my legs kicked out from under me. I just had sore legs for a while, and I landed in the manure. 
This statue was destroyed. Do you know what chaff is? When they would thresh the wheat, they would throw, uh, when they would, uh, yeah, on the threshing floors, they would throw it into the air with wind blowing. And the wheat was heavy enough to just move a little bit and fall back down on the floor. But all the associated paraphernalia around the wheat with the chaff would blow away. And it was like dust. It blew away like dust and left the wheat whole. It would have toppled and fallen and broken into multiple pieces had such a stone broken the supports. But the statue, as the scripture says, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. Say that three times fast. This brings forth the image of waving the wheat in the wind to get the chaff to float away and leave only wheat. Chaff, in this case, being reminiscent of dust. The statue was completely destroyed, so much so that no trace of it could be found afterward. Opposite that, the stone that did the destruction became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This, this is, this brings forth the idea that it filled the entire scene, filled the whole scene in Nebuchadnezzar's mind and could, and became all that he could see in his dream. The stone filled the whole sea, the whole area, filled the whole earth. He couldn't see anything now but the stone. This is what terrified Nebuchadnezzar. He woke up not knowing what this meant, forgetting it, possibly, forgetting most of it for sure, (coughs) looking for someone to help him understand it. Because when he went to bed, he was thinking about the future and what his kingdom meant, what would come after him. Daniel gave all the glory to God. And when we we go through this and the the, um, implications of each of the kingdom are brought out, Daniel will continue to give glory to God because it is he that reveals dreams. Well, he doesn't reveal dreams today to us, but he is still the same God. He is still the same trustworthy, all-knowing, grace-filled God that we have come to know and love. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.